You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio. It's time now for the Doctor's Lounge Show with Dr. Hal Schurz. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Hal Schurz, and every week, myself and my co-host, Dr. Scott Barber, come to you bringing you the information regarding healthcare issues and healthcare policy that you need so that you can advocate for yourself and for your family and your healthcare needs. The show is brought to you by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which is the only physician-led healthcare think tank in the country. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is based on the principles of the doctor-patient relationship and healthcare freedom for all Americans, and we work to achieve those goals every single day. We are um, a uh, organization that uh, has survived now for, um, I guess it's uh, going on 14 years, 15 years, and uh and we need your help to continue to survive. We thank you, those of you who have um, helped to uh, uh, keep us going and do the work for you. And I'll explain some of the things that we've done in uh, this show today. But what um, we really need you to do is just uh, go to the website and just today give a small amount of money. You can do this on a recurring basis, maybe um $25 a month um that would be that would be fantastic um at d4pcfoundation.org that's d4 the number 4pcfoundation.org and um help us to do the work that we are uh doing on your behalf so i sit behind the microphone every uh other week and um I feel like um, all I have to share with you is bad news because that seems to be the only news that is happening around our country and around the world. And it is um, depressing to only talk about bad things. Um, so today I thought that I would start off the show talking about some good things because there are some good things that are happening. Um And it uh, involves the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, not surprisingly. Um, So right now, um, there are efforts that are underway in Washington to improve health care. And the Docs for Patient Care Foundation has been at the forefront of leading these efforts, efforts that are um, in that are based on promoting the direct primary care model. Those of you who are regular listeners to the show know all about direct primary care, and so I'm not going to um, get into the weeds about that um, today. Um, briefly, for those who are new listeners, uh, direct primary care is a uh, model. Um, uh, for medical um, care, delivery of health care, where patients and doctors have a direct relationship outside of the traditional insurance model. 
And so patients pay a set fee every month, and the doctors who deliver direct primary care to these patients provide as much as they are able to in their office for that set fee and not a penny more. Um, there are some um, a la carte services that people get outside of the do- direct primary care model. The direct primary care model, it, um, these doctors <coughs> develop relationships with vendors like laboratories or imaging centers to help patients who are paying for cash pay um, the lowest possible rates for those services. They also work out relationships with doctors in the community, specialists for uh, care that is beyond the scope of the direct primary care doctors. And so these patients are able to um, uh, obtain those those services from doctors who are willing to provide them for significantly discounted rates. In some states, there are um, there are opportunities to get um, your surgical services as part of that. Um, the the uh, uh, Surgery Center of Oklahoma being at the forefront and the leader in this where you can get um, healthcare services, uh, surgical services for a fraction of what they cost in a hospital setting. And, um, and so this model has, has really, um, taken off. Um, but what has been a, a problem is federal legislation. And um, Docs for Patient Care <clears throat> has been the tip of the spear at the at the forefront, leading the push for this healthcare legislation that would make it easier for patients to receive these services. This effort has been led by the president of the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, Lee Gross, who is one of the godfathers of the direct primary care movement, he uh, pioneered direct primary care, and he is um, the uh, 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 person who has been out there speaking at state legislatures around the country and numerous, numerous trips to Washington, D.C. to try to influence um, the uh, thinking of legislators to embrace direct primary care. Now, there are others who have been very instrumental in this, and I'm not going to elaborate or enumerate who those people are, but there's a cadre of people who um, serve on the board of DPC Action, that's an affiliate of Docs for Patient Care, who have also been instrumental in um, working with people in Washington to um, help shape legislation. And by the way, uh, Lee Gross will be our guest for half of the show in four weeks. We'll have him um, uh, dial in and share with us uh, what work he has been doing um, in uh, with senators and the House of Representatives um, to help um, shape, help 
to um, come up with the language that is contained in three bills that are currently pertaining to direct primary care that are in discussion right now in Congress and hopefully will be voted on because right now there's actually a breakthrough and there's bipartisan support for this legislation. There's always been some bipartisan support, but it has really gained speed. So I wanted to specifically discuss the bipartisan Senate bill that would expand the use of health savings accounts, or HSAs, to allow payment for direct primary care. And health savings accounts are, as most people, I think, under, uh, who are familiar with this um, are aware of, is a fantastic vehicle for paying health care costs because of the tax um, benefits that health savings accounts um, provide to individuals who have these accounts. Right now, the IRS currently views direct primary care payments as insurance premiums, which under HSA rules are not allowable expenses for tax-advantaged health savings accounts. And this bill that's in the Senate would make a small change to the federal tax code which would clarify a direct primary care agreement between a doctor and a patient that does not make it ineligible for the individual to contribute to the HSA and pre-tax health care savings funds may be used to pay for direct primary care. As of July 2022, just to give you an idea of the scope of what we are talking about, you know, when Lee Gross started getting into direct primary care, there were no practices that were really doing this. There might have been a few doctors who were dabbling in this, but Lee was one of the first doctors in the United States to... Um, embrace direct primary care. That was over, gosh, I think that was probably about 10 years ago, maybe 12. As of July 2022, there were 1,762 direct primary care practices in the United States, in 48 states, and the District of Columbia. And that number tripled during the pandemic. Why? access. Nobody was able to access their doctors. Well, direct primary care doctors were very happy to continue to provide care for patients during this pandemic, during this medical crisis. And that's the beauty of direct primary care. Doctors who care about their patients. Doctors who are not um, restricted by the federal government to tell them that what they can and cannot do because they are not 
receiving any money from Medicare or Medicaid or any government programs or any insurance companies for that matter. They have a direct relationship with their patients. As such, they feel that they have an obligation to provide care to their patients who depend on them. So it's a reciprocal relationship with no middlemen involved. And that's why direct primary care took off during the pandemic. And that's why it is the fastest growing health care model in the United States with the exception of the horrible model of hospitals snarfing up doctors and employing them. So the Primary Care Enhancement Act was introduced by senators on both sides of the aisle. Bill Cassidy and Tim Scott, both Republicans, Bill Cassidy from Louisiana and Tim Scott from South Carolina, and two uh, two Democrats, Gene Shaheen from New Hampshire and Mark Kelly from Arizona. Four senators with completely different political views who were able to get together on this issue that health care is important. Health care is a personal um, issue between a patient and a doctor, and it should be easier for patients to be able to obtain health care, not harder. Similar legislation has been introduced in the House of Representatives by Congressman Pete Sessions from Texas, and there will be other Democrat sponsors, I'm certain, because of, number one, this issue, and number two, because of the bicameral relationships between uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate and the now um, very important Democrat support for this legislation. So it's noteworthy that this now has bipartisan support. Here we have common ground. We have people who are not using politics to work together to do something right, to do something better for this country. It's as, according to Democratic Senator Mark Kelly, he said that this bill is a practical step toward better medical care. And I applaud the Democrats who have stepped away from the, the, the playbook of the Democrat Party, which is to oppose the Republicans at every step and to um, take the 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 um, the part of insurance companies and the special interests who are working against the American public and not for them. So this is really good news. This bill is long overdue. And it's the latest attempt to clarify legislatively exactly what direct primary care is and what it is not. Now, our friend, uh, Chad Savage, 
who is the president of DPC Action, um, which is, as I've said a few minutes ago, an affiliate of direct of Docs for Patient Care Foundation, said that the bill would increase competition in medical markets by giving cash payments by patients the same tax advantages as health insurance. So this bill, Senate Bill 628, is a major leap forward for direct primary care. And as I have shared with you, direct primary care is thriving despite a massively skewed playing field that um, is in favor of traditional insurance company-based practices. Um, they enjoy the advantage of indirect subsidies through insurance companies and uh, puts direct primary care behind the eight ball. But despite that, it is thriving. So this bill looks to level the playing field regarding the use of tax advantage saving modalities like health savings accounts and also flexible savings accounts, FSAs, or medical savings account, MSAs. And it could further accelerate the growth of high-quality, accessible, direct primary care practices, which is really very, very important, as I'll share with you later on because of the claim by the black medical community that they are underserved and need more doctors in those communities. And direct primary care is the answer to this problem. It is the antidote to not having enough doctors because it provides a model by which people can have doctors. More than 30 states have passed laws or regulations that clarify the fact that direct primary care is not insurance. It's a medical service. So the IRS interpretation of the HSA rule, which treats a DPC agreement as insurance, is refuted by the states that have passed these laws. And it states just the opposite. So the IRS has not treated DPC in good faith at all, choosing rather to retain the rules in the tax code that prevents patients with HSAs from accessing their own money to pay DPC premiums or DPC payments, not premiums really, and favor insurance products and therefore insurance companies over patients. So this measure may indicate a willingness on the part of lawmakers to actually try to begin to solve the problems of the high cost of health care and more difficult access to health care, which is becoming a bigger problem every day. So I think that that's really good news. (coughs) Excuse me. So in another startling piece of good news, I'm just full of good news today, there's another bipartisan bill that has been introduced into the Senate that would allow health care insurers to promote first-dollar coverage 
for chronic disease treatments. So what does that mean? I'll, I'll get into that in a second. Let me just identify what I'm talking about. So the Chronic Disease Management Act of 2023, Senate Bill 655, which was introduced by two senators across the aisle, Tom Carper from uh, Delaware, Democrat, and John Thune, Republican from South Carolina, South, excuse me, South Dakota, <clears throat> um, wrote a bill that would let high deductible health plans linked to health savings accounts cover low cost drugs and treatments shown to delay or reduce the onset of more serious or secondary conditions arising from chronic illnesses with no deductible. So let me unpack that. So in 2019, there was an executive order by President Trump that permitted coverage of certain treatments as preventative And so those preventative treatments were not subject to a deductible. They were covered by the insurance company right right after that claim is put in. So, you know, you put a claim in and you have a deductible. And so if you have not met your deductible, that service may not be covered until you've met your deductible, and it could be kind of costly. So if you have um, a preventative treatment for um, hypertension, you are um, you're going to a dietitian who is helping you to have a better diet. Um, you are going to a um, to a therapist to help you with your range of motion so that you will be able to prevent a hospital stay for a condition like uh, rheumatoid arthritis. You are going to a wound care specialist if you are a diabetic to give you treatments to prevent you from getting a diabetic ulcer and maybe requiring an amputation. All of those chronic diseases are a drain on the system and cost the system in an aggregate hundreds of millions of dollars across the board. Well, if if the um, if these treatments are so expensive that people can't get them, can't access them, they won't. And so these chronic diseases that they have, which result in problems that could be prevented if preventative measures were taken, would um, they? They would uh, be. It would. It would make sense to pay for those treatments to offset the huge cost to the system, let alone the cost to the patients, which affect the economy if you've got a diabetic who loses a, a foot and can't go to work that costs the patient the ability perhaps to work and it costs 
the system tax dollars, which they're not, the government is not receiving. And, and not only that, but it is a drain on the system because now that patient goes on Medicare or Medicaid, which costs the patient loses their insurance, which was employer based. Now they're a drain on the system. So there's, there's downstream effects that would, would occur from chronic diseases if you let them run their course. But if you could prevent them, then this is better for the entire system. And if the costs of those preventative treatments are so great because people have to cover them until the deductible is met, they're not going to do them. And then it, it really is is futile. It's just not going to get better. So this bill covers those costs for the preventative treatments so that people don't have to pay out of pocket for those deductible. There is no deductible on those treatments so that they can get better care and not see the effects of their chronic diseases occur, which would lead to the the crescendo effect of problems that I've I've laid out for you. So this law would codify an executive order from the Trump administration. Unbelievable that something that came out of the Trump administration is being supported by Democrats. Now, this guidance currently lists 14 specific items and services that fall into this category, including insulin, which we now know if you follow things in the newspapers, is a huge problem, the cost of insulin. And there's bills in in Congress about paying for insulin, which... You know, is, is a, a, another issue entirely, but, but that's one of the 14 specific items. Beta blockers for people with hypertension. If people aren't taking their beta blockers, they are running the risk of having a hypertensive crisis and then the effects of that downstream. Statins, one of the other <clears throat> items, high, cho- that reduces high cholesterol plaques in the in the uh, cardiovascular system and heart problems that result from that one of the largest killers in the United States heart disease so these treatments would have to be low cost they would have to be backed by medical evidence they would have to support high cost efficiency and have a strong likelihood of cost savings I'll get back to all that in just a second, all of those things that I've italicized in air quotes. So this bill gives consumers and employers greater flexibility in constructing their HSA plan, in designing it, because now they can look at what they want to include in the HSA plan, and it works better for the Patients and it works better for the employers because they can now have more flexibility. They can, they can direct those dollars, those HSA dollars into, into, um, cost, medical costs 
that are really important, that are necessary, but would not be included in this bill of preventative services. And it would expand the number of people who could take advantage of the triple tax breaks that HSAs provide. It, it What are those tax breaks? Well, the payroll deductions or employee contributions to this qualified HSA plan is tax-free, as is the interest that's accrued in their HSA account and the withdrawals for medical expenses from the HSA are tax-free. So there's a triple tax benefit of using HSAs. So just imagine if you can expand HSAs, great tax advantages for patients, use them to pay for direct primary care doctors, which would expand access and quality of care, And this second bill will pay for the preventative services that currently people pay out of their HSAs. They'll have more money to devote for the services that they need to pay for out of their health savings accounts. So it makes no sense to discourage patients from taking drugs that prevent ER visits, hospital admissions, and more expensive care when there's some non-compliance. We have to break right now for a hard break. I'm going to finish this um, issue up because I want to just share with you some of the concerns people have because there's always a, a, a possible snake under every rock. And there, that this this bill is no exception. So I'm going to just point that out to everybody, even though I think this is good news. So stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And you are back in the doctor's lounge. So um, what I was sharing with you was good news from the uh, f- from the federal front on health care, on uh, pending legislation 
that's bipartisan that actually looks to strengthen um, health care for patients and makes it better for them, more affordable and more accessible. Um, with regard to this latest bill, the Chronic Disease Management Act, let me just point out a few pitfalls that critics um, have uh, um, uh, voiced opinions about. You know, the, the bill lists guidance for 14 specific items and services <clears throat> that are covered. So the concern is there's got to be a, 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 a group, a, a panel, um, some kind of, of group of individuals that defines these terms that are listed in the law. The four terms in air quotes are that the cost would have to be, or the treatments would have to be low cost. Who defines what low cost is? It has to be backed by, quote, medical evidence. What are we talking about in terms of medical evidence? Are we talking about randomized control studies? Are we talking about drug company-based um, uh, publications, as we have seen come out from COVID with the um, with the uh, uh, Pfizer um, quote vaccination? We don't know what we're talking about here. We don't know what this group of people will um, define as high cost efficiency. What does that mean? And finally, we don't know what it means that it has to have a quote strong likelihood of cost savings. So all of these questions will um, need to be answered because <clears throat> those are the criteria that this panel needs to um, uh, basically um, uh, come up with for a treatment to fall under this uh, law and to be covered <clears throat> as a non-deductible uh, benefit covered by insurance. So I am just putting that on everybody's radar, but, you know, I because the, the critics are um, often libertarians who don't want to see any government involvement here. And I, I do think that the government needs to have some role in health care, but as little as possible. And I'm not sure if this bill gives the federal government more or less control over people's health care, but I do think it's good news that they are taking steps to cover treatments that should be covered by the insurance company, which are not necessarily covered right away. That's a deductible expense and often a, a treatment or a procedure or a drug that is not being um, uh, complied with on the part of patients because they can't afford the costs associated with them if they have not met their deductible. So now I'm going to have to revert back to what I am typically talking about on this show, which is sharing bad news with you. So with the good comes the bad. And the bad is Medicare. Medicare is on the ropes. Now, you have heard the rhetoric from the 
Biden administration, which is really disgusting. It's a bunch of lies that are being perpetrated by um, the left, by the Democrats. And their lie is that the GOP wants to take away your Medicare. And that is just absolute fear-mongering, which is par for the course for the left, and it is a blatant lie. Now, if you want the truth, the truth is that Medicare is running out of money, and that and we need to fix this, otherwise you will lose your Medicare, and it's not because of the GOP, it's because of the the leftists, because of the, the Democrats, because they are spending money like drunken sailors, and as a result, it is harming Medicare. And um, there is a Medicare fund, but this is something that that is impacted by the economy. The more money that is made, the more money goes into the Medicare lockbox, the Medicare fund. Because when people are working and people are making more money, those deductions come out of everybody's paycheck. If you look at your your pay stub every month and you look at deductions on there, you see things taken off, including Medicare. So the more money that people are making, the bigger the workforce, the more money there is out there, the bigger the Medicare fund grows. When the, when the workforce shrinks, the money that is in that Medicare fund diminishes. So the left is really the culprit here. They are growing the the welfare state and they are damaging the production state the production the capitalist state of of our country that's what's hurting medicare as much as anything now the um rising cost of health care and the aging population will require Medicare benefit cuts or it will require tax increases. And this will happen within a decade, according to the Board of Trustees report. So the report projects that the Hospital Insurance Trust Fund, which is Medicare Part A, will be insolvent by 2031. Now, that's three years later than the last report a year ago, which is good news. But the trajectory that we are on is one where the costs and the aging population and the spending versus the amount that is in the fund are not curves that are moving in parallel, but they're converging, and they converge in 2031, which means that we run out of money. They report, the trustees do, that the total Medicare spending will grow from 3.7% currently 
to six point. I'm sorry, to six percent of the gross domestic product, the GDP, by 2046, and will remain at that level thereafter. That's huge. Six percent of our GDP will be eaten up by Medicare. Now, if the fund is emptied by 2031, seniors will be in serious trouble. At that point, the law requires that spending to Medicare be cut by 11% to match revenue, with a cut growing to 19% by 2047. Cutting Medicare by 2047, okay, that's, that's less than 25 years from now, by 20% of current spending. Spending is going to increase, so that number is going to get bigger. And the result would be a reduction in health services to seniors. And this shortfall will require tax hikes. Payroll taxes would need to be raised. I explained just a minute ago what the payroll taxes are when you look at your weekly or monthly earnings. And they will need to be raised a minimum of 21%. That would be 0.6% gross. To a maximum of 50%, they may need to double your Medicare deduction in order to make up for this shortfall. So this is what is happening, folks, with Medicare. Now it can be, it can be fixed in a number of ways. It could be fixed by stopping the profligate spending by the left. It could be fixed by growing the economy, which will raise more money. It could be fixed by changing the rules by which Medicare recipients pay for health care. Instead of requiring the seniors to register with the federal government and then get a Medicare card, which is going to be presented to doctors who will accept those Medicare payments, why not give the money to the seniors and let them spend the money how they see fit? Why not put those dollars into medical savings accounts, MSAs, and let the seniors shop for health care that makes sense for them? Why not let them get a direct primary care doctor who charges $50 a month to take care of them? Most of the care that the seniors are getting is maintenance care, going to their doctor and getting their medications and getting their blood pressure checked and making sure that they are ticking along. And those people 
get great care from direct primary care doctors. I know a number of seniors who have Medicare but also have a direct primary care doctor and they do they pay for that out of their pocket. The laws right now are um, do not favor this at all because a, a direct primary care doctor cannot order tests for their Medicare patients. They have to, if they need testing done, they either have to pay for that out of pocket if they go to a direct primary care doctor who orders this, or if their direct primary care doctor thinks that they need a certain test, they need to have their doctor who is a Medicare provider order those tests. How stupid is this? How much would it save if you allowed those direct primary care doctors the ability to order order those tests and have Medicare pay for them and have their basic care and other services paid for from the medical savings account that the government allocates to these seniors. It would, it would change the entire dynamic and it would make people more responsive and more responsible to their own health care and it would save the system billions and hundreds of billions of dollars and it would also reduce the fraud and abuse that is also costing our system hundreds of billions of dollars a year in the Medicare system. So when you hear Biden and these other leftist hacks creating a boogeyman and saying that the Republicans want to take away your senior, you want to take away seniors' health care, understand that they are lying to you, that that is not the case at all. They are not sharing the truth with you, and they're not coming up with reasonable solutions. Why? Power. Because as long as the federal government controls health care, they control you. They have the power over you to tell you what you can and cannot have, what you can and cannot get, what you can and cannot do, where you have to go and where you cannot go. That needs to change. And if that gets changed, then then I think healthcare will improve for everybody. I'm not going to have a whole lot of time to cover all the things that I wanted to in in uh, today's show. I'll tease the next show for you because one of the things that I really wanted to talk about is the statements in that are being made that are um, dividing our country further that are race based, and you know. Healthcare comes together with with social and political issues because the the government has insinuated themselves in healthcare. I've just shared with you in three quarters of this show how that happens. They've done it. They've they've put their nose 
into the business of healthcare when it comes to COVID. They are putting their nose in the business of healthcare when it comes to the transgender movement and who cannot can and cannot have um, services, meaning that adolescents and children can get these services and denying him those people those services constitutes a um, a breach of their fundamental rights um, they've gotten their nose in the business of abortion which I think is the third rail and I don't like the fact that we are in that business in government we shouldn't be talking about that because it is unfortunately going to drag down um, our ability to um, express good ideas. I wish we were not in this business, but unfortunately government has gotten into social issues and healthcare issues. And so I feel like it's the role of me as a doctor to weigh in on social issues and, and political issues, which I do on a regular basis. And one of them is on race and the divide that we are having in this country that is being perpetrated by by race hustlers and it is hurting our healthcare system the this this narrative so that's what my next show is going to be devoted to and I'm going to tease that today the last bit of this show I wanted to share with you is a little tidbit about drug shortages we are seeing this on uh, on a scale that we have never seen before in this country and it is it is um really a a uh, a problem that we need to address we need to face because it is killing us as a society and it has to do with two factors one is regulation and the other one is outsourcing um, outsourcing is an easy one to cover in a couple of sentences because many of our drugs are manufactured abroad. Um, many of the, um, of the components of many of our drugs come from China. And this is something that puts our system in grave danger. This is an issue that if we do not face head-on, is going to kill Americans. Just like COVID killed Americans coming out of China, this is the next great threat in healthcare from China that we face. And if we don't, if we don't hone up to this, if we don't address this head-on, um, there will be repercussions that will be um, felt for um, generations to come. So that's that's the two sentence um, coverage of drug shortages from an outsourcing standpoint. The the other has to do with the regulatory state, um, the FDA, the um, the uh, or the government regulatory body that makes it impossible for there to be competition in the in the um, drug arena nearly all nearly all of the 30 most frequently used emergency department drugs 
experienced shortages from 2006 to 2019. This causes harm to patients who are in the hospital, who are seeking emergency care. Because if something that is necessary is not available, an alternative needs to be provided, which may not be as good or may not be good at all for that particular problem. This is happening in the United States in 2023. We are a third world country when it comes to this. I see this every single day, every single day in my operating room. I will ask for something and we won't be able to get it because it's on, quote, back order. It's not available. I see this when I'm trying to prescribe the most commonly used antibiotic in in children. It's called Keflex or Cephalexin. It's a cephalosporin. It's a very commonly used antibiotic. I cannot get liquid cephalexin for my pediatric patients. That is inconscionable. And so I've got to find alternatives for my patients who need this for acute infections like urinary tract infections. Today, there are between 186 to 308 drug shortages in the United States. This has included saline. We're talking about the solution that's in IVs. It's used in every patient, practically, that's admitted to the hospital. There has been a shortage of saline in this country previously. And almost always, the drugs that now we see in short supply are generic drugs. Why is that? Well, it's because it's it's multifactorial, and I don't think I'm going to have time to cover it in this show. So if I don't, I'm going to include it in the next show. So I'm going to tease the next show. You'll need to come on to the next show to understand why we are experiencing these drug shortages. But the American Hospital Association has reported that virtually every community hospital that it surveyed had experienced drug shortages in the previous six months. And two-thirds of the hospitals had experienced drug shortages in cancer drugs. 88% were experiencing drug shortages in pain medication. And 95% of these hospitals lacked anesthesia drugs required for surgery. Digest that for a minute. This is going to harm Americans. Drug shortage, people don't realize that this is going on. I'm having my producer, David Moxley, look at me with crazy eyes that this is happening, but it is happening. I promise you that this is happening. And this is a crisis waiting to explode. So, the hospitals respond in a variety of ways when this occurs. They can either delay treatment, 
they can either give patients less effective drugs, which provide a different course of treatment than the one recommended, or they can not provide any treatment at all. And about 82% of the hospitals surveyed by the American Hospital Association reported at least occasionally delaying treatment because a drug was in short supply. So if I've, if I have now piqued your curiosity, if I've put this on your radar so that you do your individual research, do so. Cause I'll start the next show going through this again and then talking about the damage that the race hustlers in this country are doing to Americans with regard to health care. So that is what's in store for you in the next show in two weeks. And then in four weeks, we will have Dr. Lee Gross come in and share with you the um, information that he has uh, provided to legislators to help shape American health care and promote direct primary care. Thanks for being with us today and join Dr. Scott Barber next week on the Doctor's Lounge. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.